0: Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to John chapter 1. I'd like us to uh, to begin in John 1 this morning and next week we'll talk about the uh, cross and then the week after that, of course, uh, Palm Sunday. A very special time of the year as we uh, work up to Easter and celebrating uh, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to look at the topic who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What's the Bible uh, say about him? And again, next week, we'll, uh, we'll see more of what he has done for us. But this morning, who is this Jesus? John 1. And uh, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 18. John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we've begun this Easter season, may our hearts and minds focus on the sacrifice that your dear Son made for us. Lord, help us to see this morning his oneness with you, his offering of himself, his condescension in coming to this fallen world, and the new life that is only found in and through him. God, I pray this morning that you would open our minds to your word. Lord, may, may we be nailed, as it were, to your truth. May we find ourselves less about the things of this world and more about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Connie and I had a very unique privilege this past uh, Tuesday night. This past Tuesday night, she and I had the opportunity to have dinner with Nagme Abedini, the wife of Pastor Saeed Abedini, the young man that I'm sure you've read about by now, is held captive in a prison there in Iran. Franklin Graham had invited us and a few pastors from around the Charlotte area to come to the Billy Graham Library and to meet with uh, nagme to have dinner with her and to hear more about her story. Folks, hers is an absolutely captivating story. She's got a twin brother and at age nine her brother was rapidly advancing in, in the training that the Islamic radicals involve young boys in. And so disturbed by this, how the radicals had gotten a hold of her brother, her parents took her and her brother and they moved to, to California. Now, one morning, her brother came to her and he was sh- uh, shaking and he said, said Nagme, the God that we have been searching appeared to me last night in a dream and in a vision. His name is Jesus, and we must follow Jesus now. Well, her parents were disturbed by that. And so they took her and her brother, and they moved to live with some family members in Idaho. And during that time in Idaho, they were going to put the young son through kind of a deprogramming cycle, if you will, and, and help bring him away from Jesus Christ and back to the Islamic faith. Well, in the process of his deprogramming, The parents are the ones who were deprogrammed. They left Islam and they came to faith in Jesus Christ also. Well, Nagme met Saeed in her 20s, and uh, he was already serving Jesus in Iran as a pastor. They married, they began working with Christians, establishing Christian orphanages in Iran. And and he went through all of the certifications, all of the inspections of the Islamic government there in order to have a Christian orphanage. But nonetheless, one morning a knock came at the door. And it was the authorities And, uh, of course, the rest is history as we've read about it in the news. They carried him to prison for being a Christian pastor. They've beaten him. They've starved him. They've denied medical treatment to him. In the first prison that he was in, he had witnessed and ministered to the other inmates. And a number of them came to faith in Jesus. Infuriated by this the officials beat him and moved him to another prison And said this prison is one of our very worst With the most radical of all Muslims and the most violent of criminals They they will kill him if he speaks of Jesus We won't have to worry about what to do with him because they will take his life And so we won't have to worry about him anymore Well, many in that prison came to faith in Jesus too. And so they've continued to beat him and starve him and deny medical treatment to him. It's an amazing story of of a young couple that has certainly been on the front lines going into darkness and sharing the light about Jesus and even facing persecution as they do so. Now folks, when I heard her story, I couldn't help but see a certain amount of parallel with what we read about in John chapter 1. As we look at John chapter 1 this morning, we see that Jesus Christ entered into our darkness. And he paid the price of our redemption. That one day we might be free from the presence of sin altogether. Satan, the current tenant in the world, roams up and down throughout throughout the earth. But one day he'll be cast out altogether as Jesus comes for his bride. Now that's what this passage is all about. John 1 has been spoken of as perhaps the most profound and deep passage. The most profound page of Scripture in all of the New Testament. In John's gospel, it's John's purpose to show that the fully human Jesus is also divine. Now, Matthew and Luke begin, of course, with the genealogies. John doesn't do that because he doesn't want to simply talk about the humanity of Jesus, but he wants to carry us in our hearts and minds all the way into eternity past to see that Jesus is also divine. And so with that being his purpose, he doesn't need a human genealogy. Genealogy. What we see in this passage is that we understand who Jesus is from the divine side from eternity past. All the way to eternity future. And so when we put this passage together with Matthew and Mark and Luke, we get that complete picture about the life of the Lord Jesus. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is the the pre-incarnate Christ. That Jesus Jesus Christ was pre-incarnate. Look at how John opens. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, of course, the incarnation refers to Jesus coming in the flesh. So pre-incarnate simply means that Jesus existed before he was born in the flesh. Now, folks, lest you think that maybe John's words here in this introduction are not that important, I want to assure you that his words are incredibly important. It matters which Jesus you believe in. Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Or do you believe in a Jesus of your own making? Like James Montgomery Boyce says, If Jesus was only a man, then you can safely forget about him. But if he is God as he claimed to be and as all Christians believe him to be, then you've got to deal with him. You should yield your life to him. Now, I want you to listen to what these verses point out here. First of all, John talks about his timelessness. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, right off, this reminds us of Genesis 1.1, where the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But, But whereas Genesis 1 speaks of the beginning of the creation, John will point out that Jesus is the beginning of God's New creation of his spiritual family. And so John says in the beginning was the word. He doesn't say in the beginning began the word. But but in the beginning was the word. The imperfect uh, tense of the verb is very important. It literally means in the beginning the word already was. You see, Jesus Christ was not just from the beginning. He was in the beginning. Before there was ever a universe, there was Christ. Before there was the sun and the moon and the stars, there was Jesus Christ. There's never been a time that he was not. He's not simply a part of the created order as we're going to see in a minute as far as creation goes. He's the one who made everything. And so in the beginning when creation began, He was already there. The pre-existent, eternal Christ is described as the Word. Now, in referring to Jesus as the Word, John was using a phrase that the Jews and the Greeks both could understand. John's not making up some concept here. You see, the Word in the universe is something that they were already debating To understand what the Greeks believed about the logos, the word You really have to go back to the 6th century BC To one of the Greek philosophers by the name of Heraclitus He's the one who said it's impossible to step into a moving river twice You don't step into the same river twice And what he was talking about and what the other philosophers were talking about Is all about us in the world we see change in the universe there's change all about us but now what threw them off as we look at change all about us and everything it it seems to be in a state of flux they said at the same time the natural conclusion to that is that everything would be in chaos because everything's changing but as they looked at the universe they said everything's not in chaos seems to be a great order And symmetry to everything. And so if everything's changing but everything's in order at the same time, there must be some kind of divine logos. Some kind of divine spark or reason that's guiding everything. Some type of invisible force. Now they wouldn't have thought of that invisible force as being personal. They would have viewed it more like in the movie Star Wars, the force be with you. But John is writing to them to assure them that the Logos is not some type of impersonal force. He has a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus is this one that all the uh, philosophers of the day had been debating about. And even to the Jews, he wants them to understand as they read their Old Testament and they read, say for instance in the book of Proverbs about truth and wisdom, sometimes being spoken of almost as though it's personified. John is saying to the Jews, indeed he is personified. Truth and wisdom is personified. And again, his name is Jesus. He's the one we've been looking for. And He's timeless. He's always been there. In the beginning was the Word. And folks, by referring to Jesus as the Word, what does a Word do? A Word communicates. We only know one another's thoughts because We know one another's words. We can hear one another's words and thereby know our thoughts. And so what John is pointing out here too is that God desires to speak to his people. If God didn't desire to speak to his people, none of us would have any hope. Because on our own we can't find God. God had to condescend to us and he did so through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's this divine Logos. He's this word that communicates to us what the Father is like. Now folks, aren't you glad that we serve a God who desires to speak to us? I mean, you go all the way back in your Old Testament. Go back... Uh, To Noah, and God said to Noah to to build the ark. He was going to save Noah. He spoke to Noah. He preserved a remnant of mankind. You come down to Abraham, and he spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. He spoke uh, through through the prophets. And ultimately, he spoke to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't serve an unknowable God. He has come to us. He's made himself known. He he mentions something else about Jesus here. Not only his timelessness but his equality. He says the word was with God. Now the preposition with here in the Greek text literally means that the word was a separate entity from God. And this separate entity was face to face with God. Now folks, an astonishing thing is being communicated here that John doesn't want us to miss. The Word is on equal footing with God. All through the Bible, beginning with Genesis, we see the the doctrine of the Trinity that states God is one but in three distinct personalities. Now folks, we're not talking about three gods here. Nor are we talking about one God who who is only one but reveals himself in three distinct ways over time. In other words, sometimes he kind of morphs himself to be the Father. At other times he morphs himself to be the Son. At other times he morphs himself to become the Spirit. That's a heresy known as modalism. The Bible doesn't teach that. When we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about three distinct personalities in the Godhead. One God who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't take turns deciding who he's going to be. He doesn't wake up one morning and say, hmm, Today I think I'll be the Father. Tomorrow I'll be the Son. The next day I'll be the Spirit. He has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this even from the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The, the name for God there is Elohim, plural ending, Elohim, but yet with a singular verb. Hmm. That's a head scratcher, isn't it? Bible's trying to communicate something to us. Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our own image. Interesting. Now, folks, there are those who accuse us of worshiping three gods. We don't. We only worship one God. God is one, as the Bible says. But that one God has manifested Himself in three distinct personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John in writing of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, says in the beginning was the Word. He was there when creation came into being. He was already there and he was with God. He was on equal footing with the Father. And then he talks about his identity. The Word was God. One of the plainest statements in the Bible on the deity of Jesus Christ. While the word is a separate entity from God and is with God. That doesn't mean that he is less than God. And that is why Jesus could say I and my father are one. Now if not this week. Maybe next week, if not next week, the week after, you might receive a knock at the door. And standing at your door are going to be two or three people that identify themselves as being who? Jehovah Witnesses. And they'll try to tell you that this verse simply says the Word was a God. A God. Little g, God. And if you question them, they'll try to give you a grammar lesson that the Greek here simply means that Jesus was a God. And they'll point out that the definite article is missing and hence that Jesus is a God instead of the God. Now folks, I could try to point out to you that it is quite normal It's quite normal for predicate nouns that precede the verb to be used without the definite article. And that's what John does. And then by placing theos first in the clause, John gives it the emphatic position. And by using it without the article, he's stressing the qualitative sense of the noun. His point was deity was the word. And so grammatically, John is using the Greek language in the very best way, in the most powerful way that he could communicate that Jesus is not simply a God, but the God. But if you can't convince them on grammatical grounds alone... And they try to insist that their New World Translation says it right. Then ask them why in their New World Translation. That that it doesn't do the very same thing in verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, verse 18. Where we find the very same grammatical construction. And their theos, the word for God, is also present without the definite article. But their New World Translation does not say a God in those instances. And so they're so inconsistent. The problem here is that they want to change the text to fit their theology rather than allowing the text to shape their theology. John's point here is clear, folks. Jesus is very God of very God. The same essence and nature as the Father. He's a distinct personality from the Father, but of the same essence and nature. Now folks, these things are so very important because which Jesus died for you? If he was only a man or simply a God, then you're going to be faced with a great deal of problems when you go talking about Christ's redemption. And so these things that I'm telling you this morning aren't simply grammar lessons where everybody sits back and yawns and says, who cares? It matters. Which Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or a Jesus of your own making? Folks, it's it's an age-old question. It's like when when Jesus took his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi. And he got them away there in a a very pluralistic area. In Caesarea Philippi, they, they worship different gods and idols. And Jesus took them to a place like that. And he said, who do you say that the Son of Man is? what are they saying about him and and they said oh some say that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet and Jesus said to them but who do you say that I am and Peter said you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said Simon blessed are you among men because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you but my father who is in heaven Folks, it matters which Jesus we believe in. Well, the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus Christ is powerful. Notice what John says beginning in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Notice what he begins by saying here in verse 3. Uh, that He was the agent of creation. Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. And again he makes a very important shift in verbs here. Now before, there in verse 1, he used the verb a-me, which simply means to be. But now in verse 3, he shifts and uses the word for uh, genomai, meaning it became. The creation became, the creation started. Whereas Jesus has always been, the created order has not always been. What does Paul say about that in Colossians 1? He says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus Christ made everything. He's the agent of creation. When you open your Bible in Genesis 1 and it says God said let there be light, guess who was there? Jesus was there. And and as John is pointing out here and as other places in the Bible like Colossians or Hebrews points out, the the Father uh, made the Son, the, the agent of creation. He made everything. It was through Jesus that everything was made. Jesus Christ is your rightful owner and my rightful owner. You're not an accident. Jesus Christ created you and me. And you know what? Some people take this life that Jesus Christ has given them and they use it however they want to use it as though they are their own. But the Bible says we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. Because He made us, as Romans 12 1 says, we're to offer our lives back to Him in that grand offering, that, that living sacrifice of ourselves. We don't just give Him the things we we have. We give him ourself also. He made us. We've been bought with a price, and and John goes on to point out that Christ is not only the one who created us; He's the one who sustains us. He says, "In Him, all things uh, hold together," as, as Paul said in Colossians one. All things consist, as John says, or or Paul saying all things hold together by him. Jesus created everything in the universe and he holds it all together. Folks, the more we learn of the universe, the more we learn how vast it is. And what's the Bible say? The Bible says even the heavens declare the glory of God. And just to think that He made it all. Do you think that means He can take care of you and me? I think so if He created all that is and holds it all together and He gave you life and gave me life, don't you think He can look after the life that He created? Don't you think as the Bible says we can cast all care upon Him for He cares for us and He loves us and He's the all-knowing and all-powerful God? Sometimes we walk about in life and we fret and we worry. You know why? It's because we we don't have a vision, I think, of how great and glorious He is. Folks, He can take care of you. He can take care of me. He's powerful. He made everything. He's the agent of creation. And in verse 4 John goes on to say he holds the key of life. He says in him was life and the life was the light of men. He gives life at two levels. There's the physical level. The book of Genesis talks about God taking the dust of the earth and making the the first man and, and breathing life into him. And he became a living soul. And so God gives us both physical life and spiritual life. First he gives us physical life. Think about that for a moment folks. Man did not and does not inherently possess life of his own. Today, scientists are in their labs and they're trying to clone life. But you know what they have to begin with? They have to begin with all the essential elements of life that's already there. But how does God create life? God created life ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's how God created man. God created the universe and all that is and then created man. And God said, let there be light and there is light. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing he creates. Man can't do that. He also gives us spiritual life. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. And it's the Lord who gives us spiritual life. It's the Lord who brings about regeneration in us. It is the Lord who who gives us that new birth to where now we can say, Abba, Father, and we can be in a relationship with this powerful God. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. John 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In him is physical life and spiritual life. And then notice what he says. He's the light of the world. There in verse 4 he goes on to say the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Folks, a person without Jesus Christ is not only spiritually dead but he's also spiritually darkened. In John 8 Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness but shall have the light of life. One of the most heartbreaking things in the world to see is people who are stumbling around in the dark looking for light in all of the wrong places. Some even run from Him. John 3, 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. The light shines, and the world doesn't comprehend it. You see when the Bible says that Jesus is the light and in verse 9 he says he enlightens every man it means that every man has some witness to the light. God has put it within us. Romans 1 talks about that. God has put a certain amount of light in every one of us. But Romans 1 says man denies that. Man tries to suppress that. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light. Because coming to their light, their deeds would be exposed as evil. And they don't want to change. They don't want to repent. And so they don't come to the light. And they, people all around us are searching for something in the darkness. And like that old drunk man I told you about one time man looked out his window and he saw underneath the streetlight a drunk man down on all fours looking for something. And he went out there to help him. He said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my wallet. And he too got down on his hands and knees and looking for it. They couldn't find it. And finally the sober man said, are you sure you dropped your wallet here? He said, oh no, I dropped it way back there, but it's dark back there. Men refuse to come to the light. They're looking in all the wrong places. But look at those who come to Him in verse 12. And In verse 12 He says here, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a wonderful invitation he gives to come to the light, to receive him. And he's the one who gives life, he's powerful. He created everything that is. He sustains everything that is. He holds it all together by His grace. He's able to hold you and me together by His grace. And He grants unto us life, physical life and spiritual life. In Him is life. He's powerful. Pre-incarnate. Always been there. Never a time that he was not. Pre-incarnate. He's powerful. Somebody says, boy, I could never know a God like that. He just sounds so transcendent, so out there. I could never know a God like this. Well, John goes on to tell us thirdly that Jesus Christ is personal personal. In verse 14 he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And down in verse 18 he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He's made him known. Professor John uh, Bailey of Edinburgh University in Scotland wrote a book entitled The idea of revelation and recent thought. And in that book he tells of a complaint he once received about Christianity. The man making the complaint was a legal representative of one of the American universities. And he said, you speak of trusting God, of praying to Him, doing His will. But it's all so one-sided. We speak to God. We bow down before Him and lift our hearts up to Him. But He never speaks to us. He never makes any sign. Folks, you couldn't be more wrong than that. Because in Christianity we are talking about God speaking to us. We are talking about God coming to us. Look at what John says right here. He came in flesh and blood and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came humbly Born to a peasant couple. They're in a a manger, in a stable. Mary's son. Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. He he chose to come that way humbly in, in, in flesh and blood. The Old Testament spoke of the tabernacle as being a place where men would meet with God. He's the new tabernacle where we we meet with God. He came in flesh and blood. Why did He come in flesh and blood? Hebrews 4 says He did so so He can sympathize with you and me walking around in our shoes. He's been there. We have a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in all ways just like us and yet without sin. But by coming in the flesh, he's able to be that intercessor and that advocate before the Father. He's able to represent us. He knows what we're going through and what we've been through because he's been here in flesh and blood. Verse 18 says, He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father. He came to make the Father known. He came The word is exegete him here. He came to, to exegete him, to expound him, to, to make the Father known. And that's why he told his disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think of that early heretic, Marcion. Marcion didn't like the God of the Old Testament at all. He thought he was mean and vengeful and not personal at all, but he, he loved Jesus. He only accepted portions of, of the New Testament, though, and he took out all of, all of the birth narratives And he drew this line of division between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as though they're separate. But folks, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave. God's purposes have been the same throughout the Old and the New Testament. And it's been the loving redemption of mankind. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that that Jesus came to erase some of the caricatures ancient man and even modern man has of God? He came to reveal how the Father loves us and He wants that relationship with you and me. And He sent His Son that we might be redeemed through Him, that we might be reconciled to Him and have peace with Him. One of the saddest occasions in the Bible, I think, is when Jesus in the upper room is telling his disciples, I'm going away and where I'm going, uh, you can't come. And, And Philip speaks up and says, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't know that he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came in a personal way to show us that this transcendent God is imminent. He's with us. And He makes it possible for us to know Him and to be redeemed. Folks, this is the God that we talk about as we work up to Easter. A God so great and awesome. There's never been a time that He was not. Our Savior, second person of the Trinity, was there with the Father. He's powerful. He made everything. He sustains everything. Yet He's personal. He makes it possible for mankind to know Him. That's the Jesus that we're going to talk about at Easter. Died on the cross for our sins. Was buried and raised again the third day. Has ascended to the Father and He's at the right hand of of the Father making intercession for us. And one day He's coming again for His bride. What a wonderful Savior. What an awesome, wonderful Savior. Do you know Him? Which Jesus are you following? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? The Bible is clear who He is and what He's done. Some people want to say, oh, He was a nice man he was a prophet. He was a good teacher. He worked miracles. Yes, true, He's all that. But folks, that's not enough. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Has He drawn you to Himself or is He drawing you to Him? Jesus said in John 6, You cannot come to Me unless My Father's Spirit draws you. Has He drawn you? Or is He? Come to Him. If He's not drawing you, ask Him to. Ask Him to draw you to Him. For the Spirit of the living God to do that work of redemption in you that only He can. Remember also that as Creator and the light of the world, He deserves your worship. Are you living as a thief and a robber taking your life and living as though you've not been bought with a price? Why not begin this Easter season saying, Lord, with every fiber of my being, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. I want you to be magnified in my life. As the light of the world, He's qualified to lead you. In fact, He's the only one who can. And He knows your deepest hurt. He's able to forgive you. He's able to satisfy your soul like no one else. Do you know this Jesus? If you do, why not just spend a few moments in the invitation time thanking Him for His grace. Folks, think about His grace In saving you and me. In coming to you and calling you and taking the initiative. Otherwise, there's no way you could have ever come to know Him and be redeemed. Be grateful for the salvation that He's granted to you. And live to serve Him. Not serve the world or the things of the world but Him and Him alone. Father, draw our hearts, draw our eyes and attention to Christ and Him crucified. Lord, we thank You for this perfect picture that John gives us of the Lord Jesus and the redemption that we have in Him. Lord, I pray this Easter season we would be ready to tell all those around us about this Jesus that we have found. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.